The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. The buzz today, buy it now. Anybody ever sold or bought on eBay? That's where I got that from. Let me get started with our topic. Okay, here we go. The classic customer engagement model is evolving. As customers, business customers, and consumers, you and me, every day, everything we do, search a broad set of indirect content. Now they're looking at social media. They're looking at Internet reviews. They're looking everywhere. But guess what? All of this content your consumer, your business customer is searching is outside the realm, the scope, the control of your marketing team. Aha, it's kind of renegade information, if you will. That's what they're looking for to support their purchasing decision. They want information now. What does this mean to you? Well, the buyer, you don't know who they are because they're on the sly. They're out there doing their own research. By the time they initiate any person-to-person contact with your company, whether it's a a, a service number, whether it's an an email inquiry number, they are already more than 70% of the way to the real or virtual checkout counter. They've been busy getting their information without your participation. So the big question on the table today is, how can you capture their early cycle mind share? You want them as customers. You want to know what they're thinking. You want to know what they're thinking about buying from you. But you don't even know who they are, where they are, what they're doing, and what kind of information they think is reliable in terms of that purchasing decision. We have a panel of three experts who are going to help us unravel this very interesting challenge of modern-day buying. And remember, our context is the business customer as well as, we'll call it, the retail consumer. So we're looking at the whole broad landscape of customer mindshare. Let's get started. First up on the panel... I'm very pleased to welcome Marisa Kopek. She leads Serious Decisions, Portfolio Marketing, Strategic Communications, and Project Product Management Services. And here's a quote from Marisa I think you'll find interesting, and she will interpret it in just a second. She says, in 2015, just this year, Serious Decisions reports, B2B marketers must create and facilitate, on average, between 11 and 17 distinct buyer interactions in order to enable a purchase to occur. Marisa Kopek, welcome. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Marisa, very provocative in here. Uh, 11 to 17 distinct buyer interactions. I don't know what it used to be. I don't know if this is a good number or a bad number. Why don't you give us the background, please? Sure. I think actually as a research organization, this is the first time we've ever reported on or looked at uh, buying behavior in this way. 
Uh, we make a lot of broad-based assumptions as marketers in terms of the content and the campaign strategies, and we align them loosely to uh, buying decision frameworks. But here, what this statistic represents is saying, what is actually going on? As we observe buying behavior and study it, actual buying behavior, how many times does that buyer interact with the provider? And therefore, these numbers show how many interactions we need to facilitate and support with our programs and our content. And this is really kind of first time ever numbers mm -hmm. that we've, we've released around this. So if anything, this demonstrates the intuition or our assumptions from a strategy standpoint that we need to have integrated campaigns and multi-touch nursery streams in order to enable a buying process to occur. Very interesting, Marisa. Do you think this number is daunting to companies that are into B2B selling? Do you think when they see the number 17, they're going to say, OMG, we weren't counting on quite that many interactions? Uh, is this a, manage a manageable number? Or is this a scary number? Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on that. The first is that a lot of marketers have fallen into the trap of routine when it comes to when it comes to designing either product launch campaigns or demand generation campaigns. And they fall into what we call the, quote, white paper and webinar kind of trap. Mm -hmm. All right, we need a brochure, we need a white paper, we need a webinar. And they go back to kind of an, a fairly internally myopic standard menu yeah. of assets that they need to produce. And so this number is daunting because it says, hey, guys, uh, you're kind of taking the easy way out. You actually need to really think about that specific buyer persona and how they're interacting with you based on you know web behavior analysis um, and the market research you do, and then align your strategy to the actual buying behavior. And it's a little more than just creating a white paper and a webinar that actually mm -hmm. there's a tremendous more um, that you have to do in terms of your tactic design and also your content strategy. Now, saying Thank that, yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, one more thing is that content yeah. strategy actually can be modular. So it's not that you have to create 17 distinct assets. Your module, best practice is to modularize the content into components so they can, you know, kind of feed all of those different interactions. Thank you very much, Marisa. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I'm not sure if you said it or not, is the old-term marketing funnel, did that come into the conversation yet? It hasn't. It hasn't. I thought so. We were living and dying by the marketing funnel. You remember all the diagrams with the high end, wide end of the funnel, and then you're trying to capture people. Where are they? How far down the funnel? What kinds of tactics and strategies? How do you know you're moving them ahead? When do you bring in the heavy guns and the heavy hitters? When do you make it more of a personal interaction? When do you initiate that one-on-one -on -one sales call? When do you go and visit them? Remember those days, Marisa? <laughs> they are still here. In fact, that's what you just described is the, the way we measure the activities that we're doing. So what I'm talking about is the content strategy and the campaign strategy has to align to buying behavior. Once you put that program in place, you still have to measure the propagation of what that opportunity or what that contact is doing along the way. 
So we're still measuring and monitoring what they're doing. Um, and in fact, not only does that funnel and the understanding of what they're doing and how they're propagating through that funnel, funnel help us understand kind of campaign performance, but getting better insights into what they're doing along the way and how they're consuming the information, getting more precision around that helps feed us and makes us smarter in terms of figuring out what we need to do to facilitate those number of interactions and that buying behavior I described. Thank you, Marisa. Very good input for the opening of our show. And I have to do a quick shout-out to Ernie DeLucia, I think he pronounces it. He is tweeting at hashtag SAP Radio, and his handle is E-D-E-L-106. And we also have, of course, our series sponsor, David S. Fowler, tweeting at Dave, S-F-O-W-L-E-R. They're both keeping us busy here at hashtag SAP Radio, uh, keeping track of, so far, what Marisa has said, all of her wonderful wows, her words of wisdom, and they're going to keep on tweeting about what the rest of the panel says. So thank you to both of you. Let's bring on our second panelist. He is Eric Martin. Uh, today, we know him as an adjunct marketing professor, and some of us also know him as a senior director of customer experience marketing at SAP North America, but today he's a professor, and Eric has sent me a quote from David Packard. Those of you scratching your heads, who was that? He was a co-founder with William Hewlett of, guess what, HP. Yes, yes, yes. He also served as U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense during the Nixon administration. We won't talk about that. From 1969 to 1971, and we'll leave it there. Very interesting man. Here's the quote. Marketing is too important to be left to the marketing department. I think we just wiped everything off that Marisa just said. Eric Martin, welcome to the show. How are you today? I am, I am great, Bonnie. Thank you very much for the warm welcome. And, uh, well, I'm glad to warmly to welcome you, and th- thank you for the great quote. Love it. I've heard it before. It's so completely applicable to the conversation. So tell us, how did David Packard get here with us today, Eric? Well, it is really relevant to today's discussion, and, and uh, Packard had a lot of great quotes uh, that, you can, that you can turn to, really to have a lot of insights about business. But I'd like to tell you about the first time that I heard this quote, and in truth, I was I was kind of put off by it. Um, this was early in my career. I was working for one of the largest professional services firms in in the world, and we were uh, in the midst of a search for a new CMO. And when the new CMO stepped in, he was a partner in the firm, and not someone that was part of the professional marketing organization, which was some. 125 or so strong, and, uh, and there were some really senior and, and very strong marketers that I think had a better claim, perhaps, to that role than perhaps the new CMO. But as time went on, I, I learned the wisdom of having him step into that role. Uh, the first time I saw that quote was in his auto-signature when he introduced himself via email to all of us in the marketing department. And um, I thought, boy, that's not a great way to introduce yourself to <laughs> the marketing all. organization that you will now lead. <laughs> but his point was and is that marketing really should be an expectation and a mindset for everyone in an organization. And no matter what role you have, there is an opportunity for you to further the brand with uh, all kinds of audiences. So even in the most back office type of role, you have a marketing role. And we as a company and as different organizations need to either realize that and embrace it 
Uh, well, actually, I think that's the only choice there. I think if you if you don't realize that and embrace it, then um, then you're missing uh, quite a bit of an opportunity. Very well put, Eric. Thanks for the interpretation. And I think a lot of companies do miss it, and I see it. I think we all see it on the consumer side, especially in uh, brick-and-mortar stores where people just don't understand that no matter where they are in the organization, no matter what they were hired to do, they're part of the brand, they're part of the marketing, they're part of the heart and soul of how we see and interpret what the company stands for and whether we want to do business there. And I think that goes all the way up the chain. Is that that what we're talking about, Eric? It is. And, you know, you could even take the example of someone, say, in HR that thinks, well, I'm really not part of the marketing Mm -hmm. or sales organization but how many times do they touch people outside of the organization per day and make a brand, um, a brand impression, either positively or negatively? So if they don't think of themselves as part of the marketing arm of the company, they're missing that opportunity for sure. Thank you very much. Very well put. And, yes, HR does impact and does interface with people outside the company who want to become part of inside the company. That's a, a really good example. Eric, thank you, and, and uh, you're welcome for the warm welcome, and we're warmly happy that you are here. And I want to move on to our third panelist. He is Nick Robinson, Digital Strategy Lead for SAP North America. And Nick has sent me a quote from Eric Reese. I think I'm pronouncing it right, R-I-E-S, who was born in 1978. Well, my goodness, He's a young one. Uh, He's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and author who is recognized for pioneering the Lean Startup Movement, which is a new business strategy that directs startup companies to allocate resources as efficiently as possible. And Reese is also a blogger in the tech entrepreneur community. Here's the quote. We must learn what customers really want, not what they say they want or what we think they should want. Wow, that's a heavy-duty quote. Nick Robinson, welcome. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me today, Bonnie. I'm, I'm excited to get started on our conversation. Go ahead. Well, so I, so I picked this quote from Eric Reese because I, I've been following the lean startup movement for, I don't know, years now. So he started it back in, uh, I think, 2005, and I started following this movement in 2006, and um, before I arrived at SAP, I actually worked for a line of small businesses, and then eventually I owned my own business. So I really paid attention to what he talked about because early in my career, I, I assumed too much about what people wanted, and I actually relied too much on that, on that qualitative research versus um, observing people's behavior in a real-world buying environment. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I don't think it's a replacement for market research, but it's also, uh, I think we see too many companies that either assume they know what people want or they gather people's input on what they say they want versus actually see them interact with the product or interact with a piece of software or interact with a service in real life whether they're a current customer or they're a prospective customer. And I think, uh, I think even startups sometimes get this um, incorrect and even big businesses. So I'm really passionate about the subject because uh, it's just something that uh, I'm trying to drive in not only in my own organiza- organization, but I, I like to talk about this subject outside of work because I want to help 
businesses actually connect with their customers. So the fact that we're talking about customer engagement today is, uh, is great because it's a subject that's starting to pop up everywhere in the business world. And uh, so I think we're, we're going to start to get the investment in customer experience and customer engagement. And uh, so now, so that's the quote. When it comes to the drivers that I think are, are, are kind of um, driving this customer behavior, especially with the 11 to 17 pieces of content, uh, a lot of that has to also do with um, channels as well as uh, the, this thing called social media as well as all these new technologies that are de- being developed like wearables and eventual virtual reality. So all these things are changing consumer behavior and we as marketers have to, to adapt to that consumer behavior by creating not only more content, but content in various formats. And we also have to retrain some of our, our marketing and even workforce, like you said, with HR can be mm-hmm. external facing. Very interesting. Thank you, Nick. Great insights as well. I'm I just still mulling over this quote. Uh, to me, the most important part that resonates the strongest, Nick, is when you say what we think they should want. And I think this goes to the fact of companies saying, well, this is my product. This is my service. You walk in the door, you have to want it the way I'm selling it. Whoever heard of disruption or innovation or make for me or anything to do with the digital economy and the network economy and the sharing economy it says this is what it is. And I'm going to talk you into wanting it the way I want to sell it to you. Right. It just doesn't work anymore, does it, Nick? It just, it just doesn't work. Well, no. And, you know, it's, a, it's an old school way of thinking because, uh, you know, we hear it over and over again. Companies used to have control of the information so they could tell people what they likely want or need. Whereas now people are self-selecting. They are raising their hand by themselves because they're doing their own research online and they're tapping into their networks because now they have access to these vast networks of decision-makers, experts, and content. And um, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's one thing to say you know they want, but it's another thing to actually see what they want and experience what they want in the real world. And um, there, there's something to say about that. It's a mindset. So, and I actually was looking at a uh, or watching a TED talk recently, and the speaker talked about the three phases of how a company should communicate from the outside in. And they said they first have to start with the why. And the reason why he talked about the why is that the uh, the customer makes sometimes irrational decisions based on emotions uh, from the interior of the brain. And I completely forget the part of the brain, but it's completely emotional. And so that's Mm -hmm. the why. And then they talk about the what. So these are the the features and benefits. And then the how, which is buying, uh, for example, an Apple iPhone would be the, the how you get to the features and benefits but the why for Apple is um, think, thinking differently, and that resonates with people, and that's why one of the reasons why they have such a cult following. Um, so we have to start thinking about what people actually care about emotionally and then how we create and deliver products to, products to them that create that experience. 
Thank you, Nick, and I have a little information for you. The hypothalamus is part of the limbic ah. system, a group of four ah. brain structures that has the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. These are involved in motivation. Of course, I'm just making this up. Motivation, I'm, I'm emotion. You already knew this, right? <laughs> oh, it's just that the t- I knew you were going to ask it. Motivation, emotion, learning, and memory. The limbic system is where the subcortical structures meet the cerebral cortex. Aren't we all a whole bunch smarter now? So it's the hypothalamus and the limbic system, and now well, we know. You see what you did there? You see what you just did there? You what did I did? What did research. I did? You did some uh, self research, and that's, that's what it. other people are doing about companies on the fly. Imagine if you you're know on the phone what? with a salesperson and. You- you're validating the information that they're giving to you on the fly. Well, what a, what a great example of an example of what we're trying to give examples of on the show. Thank you very much. I think that's a tautology, circular reasoning. Thank you. I love to do little bits of uh, of lookups on the show when panelists like you and Eric and Marisa give me food for thought and things that either you want to know or I think our, our audience would like to know some of these details. I've looked up drink recipes, too. And that brings me to the next part of our opening segment, which is the what's in your cup today beverage story, pure storytelling. We just want to get to know the three of you a little bit better. Marisa Kopech, tell me where you're calling from, what time of the day or night it is, either what you're drinking, if it's fabulous, and if not, what do you think you're going to drink later on? Talk to me, Marisa. It is 1022 in the morning, and I am calling in from Wilton, Connecticut, actually in our corporate headquarters in a, a sound studio here. And I am drinking toasted almond Dunkin' Donuts, but if my boss wasn't able to listen to me, I would be preferring to drink um, a, a wonderful Cake Bread Cellars 2004 Merlot, which is the preferred beverage. <laughs> Oh, yes. I, yeah, Cake Bread. I've seen that brand. Mm-hmm. Very, that label. Very, very nice. Well, is your boss listening? or? I don't know if he's listening, but someone's listening. That will tell him. So I only tend to uh, have Ernie. wine. Well, yeah, Ernie's going to tell on He won't you. tell yeah. on me. We typically no, he, on Friday afternoons have a he, little You know what, um, Marisa? Beverage. Ernie mm-hmm. might not tell on you, but he might tweet it at hashtag SAP Radio. <laughs> so I'm putting you on notice. Ernie, you've been told. You've been warned. Ernie, go ahead and do it. See what she says. Thank you, Mar- Marisa. Thanks for the honesty here. Eric Martin, where are you? What time of day is it? And what's in your cup? Hi, I'm just outside of Philadelphia. It is also uh, 23 after 10 here, and I am drinking tea. It's straight line, high test, nothing in it. Um, Marisa, I just wanted to respond to something that you said, and, and while it's it's just after 10 here, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, so uh, your boss should, should realize that, of course, being as worldly as he is. Um, a little bit about my tea drinking. You know, many of yes. us, uh, can recall when we first had a cup of coffee, and I think for a lot of people that's that's in your late teens or your early twenties. Maybe it's while you're in college and you're you're starting to really study late into the night. I purposely avoided picking up coffee, um, and I I did not develop a taste for it for that reason. And part of the reason was I looked around me and I saw that a lot of people seemed to have a, uh, a dependency on it and would say things like, "Don't talk to me until I've I've had my second cup of coffee." The great irony to me now is that I drink just as much tea as a heavy coffee drinker does. So I don't mm. think I did myself too big of a favor, except that, uh, Bonnie, if you're, if you're looking it up, I'll beat you to it. Tea does have <laughs> less than half of the caffeine that a cup of yes. coffee does. So maybe in the long run, I'll be a little better off. Well, I have to give you a little bit of uh, anecdotal research there, Eric. We had a guest on about two weeks ago who said she learned to drink coffee 
at the age of four when her parents well, asked her to clear the dinner table as part of her, you know, let's all be human beings training. That's what I call it. I taught my kids to make beds and take garbage out when they were about five or six because I said, we all make the mess for the garbage. We all sleep in the beds. We all eat on the dishes. So let's all participate at work. They're, they're both really good homemakers. However, and one's a boy and one's a girl. However, this woman said that she learned to drink coffee by her parents asking her to clear the dinner table, clear the plates, and there was leftover coffee. So curiosity didn't quite kill the cat. She's the coffee soon after she realized she became a coffee addict and now at the age of whatever she's up to I'll just gently say several dozen cups a day and she functions beautifully but we'll do that was a whole story that was just blew us all out of the water that day but that was another show you'll have to find that and do your own research Eric thank you very much enjoy your tea Nick Robinson how can I ask you to beat those stories but I'm going to Nick what's in your cup today I'm going to try <laughs> so it is. Uh, I am also outside of Philadelphia, and I am actually at the SAP uh, North America headquarters right now in a conference room, and it is 26 after 10, so I mm-hmm. believe we are all on the East Coast. We are. And I am drinking a beautiful cup of Donut House coffee from our corporate coffee machine, and it's completely black, and that's how I've done it for years. And I'll tell you a little bit of the uh, uh, a little story about how I really got into drinking coffee. So when mm-hmm. um, when I had my own agency prior to SAP, uh, my friends started to think I was a little bit crazy because I used to get up at 4.30 in the morning. And the reason why I got up that early is because you could do so much work and do a lot of creative work, a lot of strategic work that early before really the rat race started at 8.30 mm-hmm. to 9 a.m., and that's the time where I really had my cup of coffee. I spent an hour reading just about the latest business news, and I have developed strategies for my business and sometimes for my clients, and that's why, why I always did my best work. So anytime I drink a cup of coffee, I'm doing my most strategic, creative work, and uh, I'm glad to be um, touching base with creative minds as I drink a cup of coffee right now. Well, thank you, Nick. Very interesting. And we have a note here from our series sponsor, David Fowler. He says he started drinking coffee at age six. So we have two pieces of anecdotal information that people start long before their teen years. But most important, Dave today is drinking Starbucks, Grande, straight coffee, Frappuccino, no whip. Oh, how could you resist the urge to put a little bit of whip on that? Dave Fowler, I appreciate that. Guess what? Uh, Marisa and Eric and Nick, I have to tell you the sad truth is that they don't let Bonnie have any caffeine on radio show days. You have to figure out why, and it's not going to be a Google lookup, but I have have water in a very pretty glass and today I have a pink straw when we do shows about money I have a green straw mm. that's the way it goes so guess what we're ready to take our first break it'll be our only break long conversation in the opening but I know we've really dipped our toe more than dipped our toe in the water of our topic we're talking about the future of managing customer mind share very important talking about the buying cycle how much research are your customers whether it's b2b or straight consumer retail how much research are they doing out of your control, out of your knowledge? Are they getting the information that's going to help them know what they really want to buy? Are your marketing people still working on that old funnel concept and telling your customers what they think they should buy? A lot on the table here, the buying cycle and the mind share. We'll be right back, so don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We have a great roundtable coming up for you. 
And all I have to say at this point is bread out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as business simplification, insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, business networks and supply chains, and the ever-present need for speed are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP Services. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to the future of business with Game Changers. Here we are. We're back, and I'm speaking today with a very interesting panel. It's Marisa Kopeck at Serious Decisions, Eric Martin. Today, his hat is adjunct marketing professor, and Nick Robinson at SAP North America. We're talking about the buying cycle and, more specifically, the future of managing your customer's mind share. Our context is B2B as well as everything else, so we're talking about the global concept of buying, and Marisa's going to help me kick off the roundtable. Marisa, I'm looking at your notes, and I know that you wanted to go a little bit off plan here because you were so intrigued by what Nick Robinson said in our first segment that I'm just going to say, talk to me about the emotional component of the buying cycle of the buyer's mindset and how do you grab that in terms of mind share. So let's just start with that on the table, Marisa. You run with it. We'll bring Eric and Nick in and then we'll go on from there. Please go ahead, Marisa. Okay, Bonnie. Uh, When Nick was talking about the why and how and who, um, in fact, I think about five years ago when I studied buying behavior and Uh, listening to Nick describe that, my response and my opinion would have been, but aren't business buyers objective? Aren't they factual? Aren't we assessing those decisions for the organization in a very fact-based, non-emotional way? And over the years, I've really changed my opinion on how much emotion and how much consumer-like we are even in B2B buying. It's really interesting. Our studies show that Uh, In fact, emotion and emotive benefits do play into the decisions, and that's why it's so important to really be precise about targeting individual job roles and what they care about. Um, The the most important thing about thinking about what Nick talked about, this cognitive decision process, one of the failings that we see in marketing strategy today is we design our content and our campaign strategies to be linear, basically mirroring that cognitive decision process of Mm -hmm. why, how, who do we do it with. 
But while, the, while that cognitive decision process is linear and sequential, the brain has to go through a number of decision gates in order to get to the final decision. The way our buyers consume in, information, content, and interact with us is not consecutive. It's not linear. It's much more episodic, which really is why the whole, it's really understanding that changes the whole uh, game around studying and assessing buying behavior to feed our go-to-market strategy. Thank you, Marisa. Very interesting comment. Uh, You know what? I'm going to go out of order here since you were riffing off of what Nick said. Nick, I'm going to bring you in on this, and then we'll invite Eric, and then we'll go around the table. Nick, any thoughts on what Marisa just added? Yeah, I mean, clearly I agree with that. And and I'm going to take it a step further, and you talked about engaging individuals, especially in a B2B purchase environment, Um, and I think it was research by CEB, uh, the Corporate Executive Board, that was done in 2013-2014, and it talked a lot about the uh, buying committee, on average 5.4 decision makers, and it also depends on the complexity of of the uh, of the buying decision. But what really struck me is the individual values in that buying committee. And you have to uh, develop content and experiences that play to what they really care about. So maybe, for example, the, the project lead, who is considered the expert, their, um, their motivation is most likely to get promoted. It's most likely they're, um, they're looking to make a name for themselves by leading this new project to take the, the business into the, you know, the next generation of technology or whatever solution they're buying. And then maybe the, uh, for example, the, the CMO or the CIO, they're, they're more concerned about risk mitigation, or it could be about uh, also uh, making sure that whatever project that they're bringing in also, uh, you know, confi- it, it, it kind of fits into their strategy. So it really depends on what the emotional drivers are. And that's where I think we can do some really interesting things on top of the the fact-based decision-making type of content. Thank you. Eric Martin, thoughts? Got a lot going on here. What do you think? I'm really glad we're talking about this this topic of emotional engagement. And uh, Marisa mentioned that emotion takes place even in B2B buying decisions. And that might be news Mm -hmm. for some of us, but... We can think back even to the the old statement, uh, no one ever gets fired for buying IBM. And that was true for many years. Uh, In large part, it's still true. And obviously what emotion that taps into is um, the fear that people may have about making such a a large buying decision where they balance the, the future of the business on it. So that kind of a statement, I think, really illuminates the emotional engagement that people have, the, the interaction of the heart and the head when they make a buying decision, even in a B2B uh, buying situation. And I want to reference some, uh, a study uh, that, that Gallup did about a year ago, July 2014, they, they published this, and they said that a fully engaged customer represents an average 23% premium 
for a company. And that premium might be in terms of revenue or share of wallet or elasticity uh, for, for uh, price change. Uh, conversely, an actively disengaged customer represents a 13% discount on those same measures. So plus 23, minus 13, that's quite a spread. And what we are challenged to do as marketers, especially as we think about this topic of managing customer mindshare, is to figure out what are those emotional and the rational components of engagement for a customer. Why is someone loyal to a brand? Why are they emotionally tied into it? And then play upon those factors and tie into that as early in the buying cycle as we can. Thank you, Eric. Marisa, I'm going to get you to comment on this quickly since you started this part of the thread, and then I'm going to move to something interesting and different in Eric's notes. So, Marisa, thoughts, please? Yes. In fact, uh, in March, we closed out a study on buying behavior at Sirius uh, Decisions that shows that there isn't actually one buyer's journey. There are three. And And we think there are three buyer's journeys because of this uh, fear and risk emotion that Eric is is talking about in the decision making process. Um, we we quantitatively found that the offering type or price point uh, defined the buying scenario, and they go from independent to consensus to committee. And the high, the higher the price point, the more complex the purchasing process, and the more risk. Right, So then more people have to get involved in the complexity of that decision and how we market and sell, sell to that the buyer has to change uh, based on that. So it's, it's very important to understand the scenario of buying, who's involved in the buying process, and we have found it's based on price point. Interesting. Very. I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to leave this topic, but we have so little time left, I want to make sure we cover a broad brush. I've already noted to David Fowler, the sponsor of the series, I want him to invite you all back for part two because we're just barely scratching the surface here of this great topic. Eric Martin, I'm looking at your notes here, and I want to bring in the notion of trust. You talk about using social channels to build trust, and in my opening I mentioned that your customers, your consumers are out there looking around to look for the information that will con- convince them they need to buy something from your company and they're finding it on social media very often. And your comment says buyers value trust and making buying decisions based on the brands they trust. So how does social come into this equation, Eric? You know, that that ties back to that emotional discussion as well. Uh, Trust is, Mm -hmm. is a very important emotion when you're making a significant buying decision. And Marisa talked about the size of a purchase often involves um, or indicates who is involved in it. And you you might need to build trust then among the team. And we've seen that two things really stand out when you're building trust. One is you add value. And one of the ways that we do that now is through social media. So don't just push your product and your your, your company's point of view constantly through social media. Add value to a discussion uh, within a community. And that's one way. And then the other way that we build trust is through authenticity. So who am I behind the brand? Are the people that are making decisions for the company uh, representative of the brand 
uh, in customer-facing roles, whether that's social media, whether that is meeting individually with customers, we need to make sure that the authentic nature of the people behind the brand shines through, and that helps build trust and then tie in that emotional component of the trust-based buying decision. Thank you very much. Nick Robinson, thoughts? So eloquently put by Eric. What, do you, what would you like to add or challenge there? Anything? Yeah, I mean, social, I've been in the social space for quite a long time, digital and social, and we're seeing a huge shift now with social where um, no longer is social being controlled at the brand level, but it's starting to, de- to decentralize to the employee level. So you think about the telephone, how it was kind of in a switchboard before, and then it started decentralizing into individual phones and now mobile phones. Well, the same thing is happen- happening with social and for good reason. People want to connect with other people, and there are actually studies from Nielsen that uh, back up that statement. So, for example, one study that Nielsen did is they asked the question, who would you trust a message to come from more, a brand or an individual within a company? And they found that 90% would trust a message coming from an individual or an expert employee within the company versus just coming from uh, the brand. So, for example, like branded advertisements and and radio and even branded social accounts. So 90% of the respondents preferred or trusted messages coming from employees within a company. The second study that Nielsen did, they actually did it in partnership with a technology called Empowered. And they basically, um, they compared side-by-side, and they also looked at purchase consideration, affinity, and familiarity. And they compared side-by-side expert content from companies, user reviews, and branded content. And every time, uh, expert content from individuals and uh, individuals within a company, but also expert content from outside of the company, and that expert content blew the other categories out of the water, like mm. something around 12x. So, I mean, so trust is so, so important for not only to establish relationships with your prospects and customers, but also for your content to resonate. So not only is it about the, con- the, the content, but it's about who, it, who or what it comes from. Very interesting. Marisa, thoughts on trust? Absolutely. Uh, And it's not just content that builds trust, but it's people. People Mm -hmm. still matter in the buying process. And this is one of a very key point um, that we have tried to, to really prove through the research we do, is that with the advent and growth of social and digital marketing, there was a, a, a generally a, a movement to thinking, well, now that we're doing digital and social marketing, the salespeople don't matter anymore. You know, the, 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 we can, the digital is disintermediating the B2B salesperson. And in fact, what we proved with the research is that buyers are still interacting with sales reps over 60% of the time throughout every stage of the buying process, which Mm. completely contradicts common beliefs about what's going on in B2B buying. And when we peel back the onion and try to figure and have tried to figure out 
why they still interact with a salesperson, why do they need to touch another human being, it's three things. Trust, the second is confidence in the decision, and the third is validation. And people still matter. And it's not just the sales representative. They're interacting with executives, subject matter experts, but that people component and those handshakes still need to mm-hmm. occur in, in our marketing and sales approach. Thank you, Marisa. I was looking at your notes, and I had highlighted in various colors the opportunities for handshakes. I love that comment. Mm-hmm. So I'm so glad you brought it in. You say they can be virtual or digital, but handshaking must occur in the B2B buying process in order to win the deal. So important. That's the human element, the emotional element, the reaching out element. Thank you so much. Uh, Eric, I'll give you a moment just to comment on this before we move on. I'm going to try and squeeze in one more topic, at least looking at Nick's notes. But Eric, since this was yours, trust anything you want to say say that Marissa about what Marissa Marissa added or uh, Nick talk to me Eric when I think about the role of, of individuals I reflect on word of mouth and how important that is in influencing decisions both for consumers and uh, within their corporate uh, environment as well and you know that can be a, a factor as, as much as 20 to 50 percent of the influence in a buying decision according to McKinsey and company and you think about the different ways that um, that word of mouth could be identified, uh, and, and it's it's a matter of, of doing something that Nick said earlier in the call, which was going back and examining how your customers buy, what is important to them, ask them, and they'll tell you about the emotional and the rational factors, and the experiential factors that they that they want to tie that into it, and and then as a company, um, as you do that research, you listen to the data, you listen to the, the customer's own words, you can start to manage word of mouth uh, and not just look at it as something that is that is out there happening. You can manage it through uh, intentional means. You can manage it through finding the influencers in the marketplace. And most of all, you can manage it by, by emphasizing those things that are the biggest emotional and rational decision-making components that are a factor for your product or your industry. Thank you very much. Eric, I have to compliment you. You're talking and tweeting at the same time, and I appreciate that. I'm seeing you pop up here on hashtag SAP radio, and that goes back to some comments about, not on this show, about a former U.S. president who could, I think, walk and eat broccoli at the same time or chew gum, something like that. I appreciate that. Had to get somebody to laugh there. Uh, Nick Robinson, I'm looking at your notes here. We've got 10 minutes till the end of the show, and I want to save at least a minute and a half for each of you for predictions. But, Nick, I'd like to bring up a topic here. Uh, the two interesting ones. One is marketing on the go. Forrester predicts by 2021 in five sales, that's 20% will result from data collected from mobile wearable devices. Let's leave that one on the table. The one I want to talk about relates to something Eric just said, data digital. It sounds like a, a new medication, like digitalis, data digital, <laughs> big data driven digital. And you say in 2015, that's right now, we're halfway through the year. Big data will move from a feature to an integral part of the digital process. Talk to me, Nick, a little bit about pioneer brands like Unilever and Coca-Cola. What are they doing with the data that they're mining from social buzz? Talk to me, Nick. Yeah, so... Those are two brands, but I'd actually like to touch on another brand that's doing something really, mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, not only are they using social buzz to develop content and, and, uh, and fuel their programmatic advertising, 
but they're also using data to communicate in real time when somebody hits a digital property or if somebody uh, hits their digital property, but then there's this whole chain of uh, events that go on based on that data in real time. So it's completely automated. So it's a, a company, a little company called Craft. You guys probably know what it is. Uh-huh. What they've done, so what they've done over the past five years is they've, they've also done this little thing called content marketing, but they've done something really smart. They actually created their own publishing brand, so they have their own magazine, and through that magazine, they, they collect all types of first-party data, so they can actually take that data, uh, um, you know, slice it and dice it in their CRM, and then they can also use that data to inform their marketing decisions. So they have a ton of information that usually traditional publishers have about their audience. Now, guess what they're doing with that data now? They're taking that data and creating these I guess you call them workflows on their website. So I'll take you through a scenario. Let's say you're looking for a bulk box of Kraft macaroni and cheese on the website. Well, in real time, they'll be able to tell if you've bought before, if you've, uh, what type of brand you've bought, um, where you're coming from, what the weather's like, if there's a store nearby, and they'll be able to co- completely personalize your experience in real time on the fly without you having to do anything, without you having to raise a hand. Now, that's something that we can accomplish a little easier in the United States because our privacy laws are a little more relaxed. But um, in places like Europe, it might be a little more tough to accomplish a scenario like that. But that's what I'm talking about when we talk about big data. So not only are we using the information for insights, but we're also using the information to completely automate experiences that were semi-static before. Mm, How do we go from bordering on creepy to, wow, what a great contextual experience. I'm glad you know who I am, Mr. or Mrs. Kraft. How do we we cut that one? Nick? Well, so I think it's it's a... the, the interesting thing that Kraft did is uh, all the information that they collect, it's, ha- it's from hand raisers. So they, they were completely mm. transparent about what they will do with the information, and the people willingly gave that information in exchange for some type of value. So there always has to be some type of value exchange, um, whether it's a personalized experience, um, it could be uh, it could be content that no one else is getting unless you're providing some type of information. It could be, you know, so uh, VIP experience, et cetera, et cetera. But it all comes down to the value exchange, and there has to be that balance. And I think Kraft has done that really well. Thank you. Great example. Marisa and Eric, I want to give you each about 30 seconds to respond because we're six minutes from the end, and I must give you each a full 60 seconds for your prediction. So, Marisa, thoughts on this big data-driven digital? Nick introduced it's absolutely critical and key for us to become more of a learning organization and understand buying behavior. So learning, and we can do it at an aggregate level, so it isn't so impeding on people's per- personal privacy um, at an account or IP address level, looking at how um, organizations are consuming information as part of their buying process on our website, our digital pro- properties, social listening, as well as looking at how individuals 
on a job role level are consuming content and snapshotting those patterns to make us smarter about how we're messaging and what type of assets we're creating to help inform their decision to buy. Thank you very much. We're not at predictions yet, so we're going to save uh, the forward-looking comments. Eric Martin, 30 seconds comments on what Nick and Marisa just shared. I'll just tie it back to the the trust discussion that we were having a a few minutes ago. And Nick gave a very good example of how uh, Kraft is very transparent in how they're going to use the data. And that's one way of building trust. Another is the credibility, the brand equity, the the trust equity that a company uh, earns over time. Um, I feel much better about my interactions with a trusted brand than I do with um, an unnamed governmental body, let's say, that may be using data for other purposes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I just interviewed the director and producer of the film called The Human Face of Big Data. Any of you familiar with it? I am. That's a great film. Yeah, they they were on uh, SAP Radio yesterday on Coffee Break with Game Changers, my flagship series, and, and the, the issue of privacy and trust came up, and they said people don't realize that when you're on Facebook, you are donating your personal information in a transaction that most people don't even realize they're engaging in, period, end of story, another topic. Marisa Kopek, we're up to almost out of time. I'm going to give you 45 seconds for your predictions. I love the year 2020 just because it sounds so good, but you can fast forward to any time in the future you like to Tell me what your time frame is. 45 seconds of predictions. What will happen in the future to the future of managing customer mind share? Marisa Kopek, Serious Decisions, 45 seconds, go. Product solution industry marketers who are focused today on being subject matter experts for the offerings that we serve will become subject matter experts on the buyers for their offerings. So there will be a complete switch in terms of skills, behaviors, and processes and organizations around uh, very core competency marketing in B2B. Thank you very much. Brief and to the point. Appreciated, Eric Martin. 45 seconds. Predictions. How far in the future are you looking, Eric? I'll look at 2020 as well. And, and okay. actually, it'll probably happen sooner than we think, but... Bonnie, you've mentioned my role as an adjunct professor. That's at the the Villanova School of Business. I have a chance Mm -hmm. to speak to uh, quite a few business students, of course, as part of that role. And some of them think that they're attracted to marketing because they're not analytical. And what I try to emphasize with them, among other things, is get comfortable with, embrace the analytical portion of marketing, even if you're not an analyst. Uh, There used to be an old saw I think it was a Henry Ford quote that said that uh, I understand 50% of my marketing is working, but I don't know which 50% it is. And that just does not fly anymore. And by the time we get to 2020, I think when people talk about the art and the science behind marketing, almost the entire conversation will be around the science portion of it. Very well put. Thank you, Eric. Nick Robinson, I saved 45 seconds for you, and that's all we have. Talk to me. Predictions, go. I'm going to get really ground level with this. So uh, I'm starting to see artificial intelligence pop up in business. So I'll give you two really quick examples. One is called X.AI, and basically it schedules meetings for you. All you have to do is CC Amy, and Amy will go back and forth with the person that you're trying to schedule a meeting with, and you don't have to do a thing. 
so that's the first example that I'm seeing, and I'm actually on the beta wait list. I can't wait to actually get on. Mm. Second is a tool called Emma. And basically, Emma is a sales assistant. So basically, you CC Emma and you give her instructions. So, for example, if you're a salesperson, you can ask her to look up all the decision makers within this set of accounts on the West Coast. And she'll go out, scour the web, and give you what you want in, in, in a nicely formatted email. So I'm pretty bullish on artificial intelligence to make marketers and salespeople more effective. Thank you, Nick. I think you're making Siri jealous and whoever those other <laughs> female. Cortana, I, I, you know, we're going to have a whole ilk of uh, hers, right? H-E-R apostrophe S. Mar- Marisa, you have been tweeting. Thank you so much. Marisa says at hashtag SAP Radio, great conversation on buying behavior on hashtag SAP Radio. Learning so much. We're learning so much because of you, Marisa Kopek, because of your co-panelists, Eric Martin, our professor of the day, and Nick Robinson at SAP. And thank you, Big shout out to all three of you, plus Ernie DeLucia for tweeting so much. And of course, our sponsor, Dave Fowler. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Been a, it has been indeed, Marisa, a great conversation. And let's see, that's the end of my broadcast week. We did five live shows this week, and we're going to have five live shows next week. What can I tell you? The fun never ends. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. And a shout out and appreciation to Brad Comer and the Business Channel team for getting us on the air every single time. Have a great one, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.